Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew's gospel was written primarily for a Jewish audience, and his goal in this gospel is to establish a link between the Old and the New Testaments. The fact is there is continuity between the Old and New Testaments. The Bible is really a book of one story. I've known people that only read the New Testament. You know, soldiers once carried with them a little pocket New Testament and Psalms. You've probably seen that formulation of the Bible, but that's only about a third of the Bible. And if we're truly going to understand the Bible, it's important for us to look at both Testaments together. And Matthew is going to show us that the New Testament really completes and fulfills the Old. That Jesus, when he was born, fulfills Old Testament prophecy. In fact, Matthew's Gospel contains 53 direct quotes from the Old Testament and an additional 76 indirect allusions to the Old Testament. So over 120 times, Matthew connects the story of Jesus to the Old Testament and shows us that prophecy was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew's goal is to identify Jesus of Nazareth as the promised and anticipated Messiah. And many of these prophecies and Old Testament passages to which he refers depict the coming Messiah as a powerful ruler or king. So Matthew focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ as the king. This is the royal gospel. Nineteen times the word king appears in Matthew's gospel, and the word kingdom appears another 54 times. Matthew is going to show us that the messianic king has come. So our text today speaks of the birth of the king. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And it's interesting, even in the Old Testament, that it tells us the Messiah would come during the days of the Roman Empire. Listen to Daniel 2.44. And in the days of these kings, the kings or the Caesars of the Romans, 
shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Notice it's a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Neither shall it be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That prophecy in Daniel 2.44 now finds fulfillment in the days of these kings, the Roman Empire, when the king is born. Let's start with a few thoughts concerning the king's pedigree, and you'll notice I didn't read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. And the reason I didn't read it is because it says, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph and his brethren. Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17 is a genealogy. The book of the generation, it says, of Jesus Christ, the genealogy. The Greek word gives us our English word Genesis. This is the beginning, the beginnings of his human nature. And, of course, we know that Jesus Christ did not begin in Bethlehem's manger in his divine nature. Micah 5, verse 2 is a prophecy in the Old Testament about Messiah's birth, and it says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler, that is the king in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old even from everlasting. Notice the one who would be born in Bethlehem has been in existence from everlasting. You say, well, how is that the case that he began in Bethlehem, but yet he didn't begin in Bethlehem? And that is true because he has two natures. His human nature began with his supernatural conception in the womb of the Jewish Virgin Mary and his birth. That's his human nature, but his divine nature has always been, he's always been God from all eternity past. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus Christ is the Ancient of Days, whose goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting, but yet he made his entrance onto the stage of human history in Bethlehem's manger. And this first part of Matthew's gospel speaks of the king's pedigree. And notice the emphasis here is that the Messiah comes from the royal line. He's the son of David, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David's line was the kingly line. You know, if I was going to start a novel, I wouldn't start with a family tree. You probably know that the way that a writer starts a book is very important. It was a dark and stormy night is a famous beginning. It captures the reader's attention and makes you wonder what is about to happen. But to start with a genealogy seems to be very unwise from a human perspective. But why does the Holy Spirit begin the New Testament with a record of Jesus' physical ancestry? Why does he talk about all of these begots. You know, when I'm reading through the Bible, it's easy to just skip over those long genealogies. How about you? I mean, I can't pronounce half the names anyway. <laughs> now, we know, don't we, that there is no wasted ink in God's book. We know that everything that is there is important. But why does he begin Matthew's gospel, the New Testament, with a family tree? It seems to be very unspectacular. I'll give you a few reasons. This genealogy is important because it establishes the Lord Jesus Christ as a real human being in history. He isn't simply a made-up figure, a legendary figure. Jesus Christ really lived, truly lived in history. He's a real 
human being, and the genealogy teaches us that much. Heard a story about a missionary to some remote tribe in South America who, after he learned their language, secured a portion of Matthew's gospel, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount to the end of Matthew's gospel, and he translated Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 28 into the native language of this obscure and remote tribe. And he began to teach them Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so forth and so on. He taught them the Sermon on the Mount, he taught them the miracles, and the people listened to his teachings politely, but it seemed to have no impact. And then after several months, he received from home a package that had Matthew chapters 1 through 4. And he began to translate that into their native language. And he said, now this is the portion of Matthew's gospel that I didn't have available, but now I do. And now we can put it all together with what I've been teaching you. And it began with this genealogy. And the people came to him about a week later, very surprised, and said, do you mean this Jesus that you've been telling us about was real? And he said, absolutely. And you see, they learned from the genealogy that he was not just a mythical figure, but he was a real human being in history. This genealogy is important because it establishes that our faith is based not in legend, myth, fairy tale, but it's based in historical events and facts. My friends, Jesus of Nazareth actually lived. He was real. Just as you have a family tree. And I have a family tree, so Jesus, my beloved, came as a Jew. His lineage can be traced all the way back to Abraham through David, and it's a royal line. That is, this is the kingly line. Another reason this genealogy is important, the Jews, as you know, were very intentional about ancestry. I mean, your Old Testament is filled with family ancestry. And one of the reasons the Jews kept such meticulous records about their family trees was because real property was divided according to original tribal inheritances. When they came into the land of Canaan, you may remember God gave each tribe a portion of land, and that land was to stay within that tribe. They couldn't sell land to another tribe because it was to pass down from one generation to the next. It was their inheritance. And the Jews, therefore, were very careful to keep accurate records about their family lineage because of property inheritances. Furthermore, the priestly office required men to prove that they were qualified to serve as priests by tracing their family tree back to Levi. And in Ezra chapter 2, verse 62, interestingly, when they came back from Babylon, there was a group of people who were claiming to be priests, but when they traced their lineage and they found that they could not qualify as Levites. They were, it says, put from the priesthood. They were not qualified. Furthermore, the king's office required men to prove their right to the throne by tracing their family tree to Judah. Just as Levi gave the Jews the priesthood, the tribe of Judah gave the Jews the office of king. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter, of course, is a king's symbol of authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, that is, his descendants, his offspring, until Shiloh, capital S, comes. And unto him, that is, unto Shiloh, shall the gathering of the people be. The reference to Shiloh there means peace giver, and it's a reference to the Messiah. 
That's a prophecy of the coming Christ. And he says the Messianic king would come from Judah's family lineage. Now notice this genealogy is a descending record. There's another one in Luke chapter 3 concerning Jesus that is an ascending record. Now what I mean by that is this one starts with Abraham like a family tree. It branches off, it descends down to Jesus. I want you to notice, though, how it identifies Joseph in the 16th verse. It doesn't say Jacob begat Joseph, the father of Jesus. It says Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, that is, of Mary, was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So Joseph is not the biological, but rather he's the adoptive father of Jesus. So this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 establishes Jesus' legal right to reign as king. Now, the one in Luke chapter 3 is an ascending record. It starts with Jesus. Instead of starting with Abraham coming down to Jesus, it starts with Jesus and traces his family tree backwards all the way to Adam, and it does so through Mary, his mother. So Matthew 1 is Joseph's ancestry, Joseph's lineage. Luke chapter 3 is Jesus' descent from Mary's lineage. And that's the biological ancestry in Luke chapter 3, or the bloodline of the man Jesus. So biologically, Jesus was in the Davidic bloodline, and legally, he possessed a royal pedigree in the line of David as well. Joseph's line comes from David through Solomon. Mary's line comes from David through another one of his sons named Nathan. And those are the two genealogies of Jesus Christ. Now, with that background, I want you to notice several very interesting features about this particular genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The first thing I want you to notice is it includes five females. Now, that's uncommon for females to be listed in a genealogical record. In fact, uh, the reason it's uncommon is because genetics passes through the male that's why in the Old Testament you read Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph and his brethren, and so forth and so on. You see, it's the male that is mentioned in the family tree. And it's very uncommon for females to be mentioned. And there are five of them mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Tamar in verse 3, and then Rahab in verse 5. And then Ruth in verse 5, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. So we've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then we've got Bathsheba, who is mentioned in verse 6 indirectly. David begat Solomon of, of her that had been the wife of Uriah. That's obviously Bathsheba. And then, of course, Mary in verse 16. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who's called Christ. So five females are mentioned in this. And notice some of these females are foreigners. This is interesting. Rahab was a Canaanite. She lived in Jericho. And you'll remember when the spies went in, Rahab was spared because she put the scarlet line in the window. She had hid the spies and delivered them from being killed. And she did all of that by faith. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. She was from the land of Moab. You can read about her in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. She was widowed, and she came home with her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem, Judah, 
And you'll remember Boaz saw her gleaning in the fields after the reapers, that is, picking up the leftovers that the harvesters had left behind. And he felt tender toward her, and he began to make provision. He said, leave her some handfuls of purpose. That is, deliberately, I want you to drop extra. And of course, Ruth came home with such a stash of grain that her mother-in-law, Naomi, was surprised. And she said, where have you gleaned today? She said, in the fields of one named Boaz. And to make a long story short, Ruth petitions Boaz to do the right of a near kinsman, to marry her and to raise up seed in the name of her departed husband. And Boaz graciously marries Ruth and protects her. And from Ruth comes King David. But notice the ladies that are mentioned in this genealogy. Some of them are foreigners. Rahab's a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba was likely a Hittite. She was married to Uriah the Hittite, and it is possible that she was herself of Hittite descent. And what do we learn about our Lord Jesus in the fact that there are females as well as males mentioned in his family tree, and that many of them or some of them were foreigners or strangers? We learn, my friends, that his kingship is not local, but it's international. Jesus Christ is king of the nations. Jesus has people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and females as well as males. Of all ethnicities, genders, our Lord Jesus Christ is an international or universal king, if I could say it like that, and he has people that he chose before the world began and that he redeemed on the cross far beyond the borders of the Jewish family. That's one of the lessons we learn about the king who was born in Bethlehem. He's an international king. And I want you to notice something else. This genealogy includes not only foreigners and females, it includes sinners. Now, many people are reluctant to trace their family lineage because they don't want to find a horse thief somewhere in their family lineage. But you know, the fact is that every family has skeletons in the closet. Every family has sinners in their lineage. And certainly that's true of the family of Jesus. Notice it mentions Tamar. Judah begat Pharez and Zerah of Tamar. And you may remember that story from Genesis 38. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Her husband was evil, was wicked, and God slew him. And then another brother, Onan, was wicked and God slew him. And Judah, instead of thinking that something must be wrong with my boys, began to think something must be wrong with my daughter-in-law. And so he does not allow the third child to marry her, the third son, and to raise up seed according to the law of leveret marriage. And Tamar is basically put out to pasture. She's, she's left bereft of children. And she hatches a plot where she deceives Judah. And he ends up going into his own daughter-in-law, and she gives birth to twins through him. It's a very scandalous kind of setting. It's an incestuous kind of relationship. What an embarrassing thing to put into the family lineage of the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only is that embarrassing, but you go on down to Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. 
She's called Rahab the harlot. And then he mentions Ruth. She was a Moabite. They were idolaters. So you've got incest, prostitution, idolatry, and then he mentions Bathsheba. There is adultery. When David saw her bathing on the rooftop and he hatched a plot to have her brought to him, and of course they committed a treacherous sin, and in trying to cover it up he had her husband murdered, and it was a scandalous kind of event. My friends, may I say that this fact that the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ is besmirched with scandal and skeletons in the closet, the lesson here is this is a genealogy of grace. For Jesus is not only the king of nations, but he's the king of grace. That's what sovereign grace means. Grace is on the throne. And may I say, my friends, because sinners are in the human lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, it gives those of us who are also sinners hope to think that his grace might cover us as well. He does not omit the mention of these scandalous sinners in his pedigree. May I say because of that, you and I can have hope that there is grace enough for us as well. Now, I want you to notice something else interesting about the genealogy of Jesus, the king. Not only includes foreigners and sinners, but it includes tension and problems. In fact, there were two curses on the royal line. The first is the curse on Judah. After Judah had committed this incestuous sin with Tamar and Pharaoh and Zerah are born, God cursed the house of Judah for 10 generations. And he said that there shall not a man from Judah's line sit on the throne for 10 generations. Interestingly, when you come to the book of Ruth, you'll notice that the lovely love story, the romance of redemption that is the book of Ruth, ends like Matthew begins with a genealogy. Now that's pretty anticlimactic. Ruth is a, one of the most romantic books in all the Bible. But it ends like this. Ruth chapter 4 verse 18. Now these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs beget Hezron. Hezron beget Ram, Ram beget Aminadab, Aminadab beget Nason, Nason beget Salmon, and Salmon beget Boaz, and Boaz beget Obed, and Obed beget Jesse, and Jesse beget David. The end. You say, that's not very interesting. Why is that in there? Because the book of Ruth was written to prove that David had the right to sit on the throne. And you say, well, he's under the curse. He comes from the tribe of Judah, and ten generations from Judah were still under the curse. But I want you to notice the list here. Judah beget Pharaohs. Okay. Pharaohs beget Hezron. Hezron beget Ram. Ram beget Amenadab. Amenadab beget Nashon. Nashon beget Salmon. Salmon beget Boaz. Boaz beget Obed. Obed beget Jesse. And Jesse beget David. The curse is over by the time David comes on the scene. The curse on the house of Judah is ended. When David comes on the scene, and you'll notice in Matthew chapter 1, it says Judah beget Pharaohs, and Pharaohs beget Ezram, and Ezram beget Aram, and Aram beget Amenadab, Amenadab beget Nashon, Nashon beget Salmon, the very same list. And Salmon beget Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz beget Obed of Ruth, and Obed beget Jesse, and Jesse beget David the king. It mentions that David was the king. So here's one problem in the family lineage of the Messiah that is solved 
Can Judah's descendants sit on the throne? Not for 10 generations. David was the 10th generation and the curse was broken. But there's another curse. And you'll see it in verse 11 when it says, Josiah begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Now, if you'll keep your finger here in Matthew chapter 1, listen to Jeremiah 22:30, which says about Kaniah or Jeconiah, the last king in the line of Judah over Israel. It says, this man, Kaniah, God says of him in Jeremiah 22:30, write this man childless. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have any children, but it means that he didn't have any sons that would inhabit the throne. His dynasty was ended. A man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Do you know what happened after Jeconiah reigned as king over Judah? The next king was not his son. It was his uncle, which should not have been. That's out of the line. His uncle took the throne, Zedekiah, for a little while. And Jeconiah, Kaniah, was taken to Babylon, and so was Zedekiah. His eyes were put out, and he was taken to Babylon, and there was not another king over Judah from the time that they went to Babylon until Jesus Christ was born. Over 500 years, there was not another king over Judah, the curse of Kaniah. So that means that none of Kaniah's descendants could sit on the throne. Joseph is in, as you read Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, is in the line of Kaniah. That means if he was the biological son of Joseph, he could not be a king. But you see, he wasn't the biological son. He was the legal son of Joseph, but he was the biological son of Mary. Thus, he escaped the curse of Kaniah. We learn, my beloved, from this, that he's not only the king of nations and the king of grace, but he is the king of wisdom. The king that was born is able to solve the tension and the problems. These two curses, he's the king of wisdom. And then notice this genealogy includes commoners. Now, the names of many of these people are obscure and insignificant people. They're not people that you would ordinarily know or hear about or think about. You know, even Jesus came in a lowly estate. His family was not nobility. Like the kings of England or the queens of England, they trace their pedigree through a certain line. And they take great pride in their pedigree. Jesus came from a line of common people. In fact, his dad, his father, his adoptive father was a carpenter. He's the son of a carpenter. He's not the son of a king. He's the son of a carpenter by his human descent. I think we learn from this that he's the poor man's king. The king that was born in Bethlehem is an international king. He's the king of grace. He's the king of wisdom. And my friends, he's the king of the poor and the lowly. That gives hope to people like me and perhaps you this morning. And then I want you to notice how this genealogy ends in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Matthew, under divine inspiration in this passage, divides Jewish history into three periods. Each 14 generations, 42 generations from Abraham to Christ divided into three periods of 14 each. First, from Abraham to David, this is the golden age of Jewish history. 
as the Jewish nation is established and it prospers and it flourishes and it gains victory, that's the golden age, Abraham to David. Then David until the Babylonian exile. That, my friends, is the age of the nation in decline as they begin to experiment with idolatry and they have various kinds of setbacks and judgments. And then finally, from the carrying away into Babylon until the coming of Christ, this is the nation under judgment in a deplorable, confused, and weakened state. Notice how the nation flourishes and then it's on the downgrade. The nation, when Christ was born, is in a weakened, confused state. It's a time of silence. In fact, from the end of Malachi until the beginning of Matthew, 400 years of silence have elapsed. Not a prophet was given, not a word from God during that 400 years, and they became increasingly entrenched in tradition, human tradition, and bondage. And it was into this sad, forlorn state now that the king was born. After darkness, light springs up. A new day dawns. And let's talk now about the king's birth in the few moments we have remaining. We've talked about the king's pedigree. That's the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. The passage I read in your hearing speaks of the circumstances of the king's birth. And it speaks of it primarily from Joseph's perspective. I want you to notice Joseph's predicament. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, now an espousal is like an engagement, except it was legally binding. As far as the law was concerned, once a young lady had been espoused to a young man, they were on the record books as good as married, even though they hadn't consummated the marriage. So Mary was espoused to Joseph, and it says before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, I want you to feel the tension in this passage from Joseph's perspective. Of course, obviously, it was a surprise to her that she was expecting a baby when she had never known a man. But how is she possibly going to convince him that she has not been untrue and unfaithful? How could Mary possibly expect him to believe this story of a supernatural visitor of course, that's not something that happens every day, <laughs> and it's not something that had ever happened before. It is the first occasion in history of a virgin conception and birth. So Mary is a spouse to Joseph. No doubt they're excited, this young couple, because they're about to be married. And suddenly, before they've even come together, she is found with child of the Holy Ghost. And Matthew tells us that it was the Holy Spirit who conceived the seed in her. And Luke 135 explains how that happened. It says, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. That is, envelop. The word overshadow means to encircle or envelop. And that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Notice it does not say that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall become the Son of God. He's already God's Son. The Sonship of Christ goes into eternity past. He's the Son of God from all eternity. But my friends, the Son of God became the Son of Mary. The Son of God became the Son of David. You see, Jesus took on a human nature. He didn't lose or release His divine nature. 
He's still God from all eternity past, but now he assumes another nature, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, in every respect human except for sin. Sin accepted. Jesus was not a sinner. He's that holy thing that shall be born of thee because he does not have an earthly father. You see, the depravity of human nature passed down from Adam. It passes genetically through the male. And Jesus did not have an earthly human father. He's the woman's seed. As Genesis 3.15 says, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. Although the serpent would bruise his heel, yet he would deal the death blow to the old devil's head. That is a prophecy of the Messiah, the seed of the woman. Never is seed in the feminine gender in the Bible. It's always masculine. The seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Joseph. But here, Jesus is said to be the seed of the woman. And that's why Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of the time has come, God sent for this son made of a woman, made under the law. So Jesus is thoroughly human, but he didn't have an earthly father. And this is the great doctrine of the virgin birth. And it's important that we maintain it and continue to insist upon it because it identifies Jesus as the impeccable son of Mary. He was not a sinner. But at the same time, my friends, he was thoroughly human. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He is born of a woman that he might be human, but not by man that he might not be sinful. You say, well, can a person be a human without being a sinner? Well, remember Adam? Before he transgressed God's law in the Garden of Eden, he was a human. He wasn't an animal or an angel. He was a human being, but he was not a sinful human yet. And Jesus is the second Adam the second representative figure who came to this world thoroughly human, but not sinful. How do you know that Jesus was human? Well, he had a pedigree, he had an ancestry, he had a family lineage, and we know that he experienced the infirmities and weaknesses of human nature because he became tired and weary. We find him sleeping on one occasion, sitting down on Jacob's well because he was weary with his journey. We find him thirsty and hungry as human beings would. He knows what it is to live a human life. He even knows what it is to feel the guilt of human sin because our sins were imputed or charged against him on the cross. They were laid upon his shoulders. So by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. This passage in Matthew 1, 18 to 25 speaks of the king's birth. And Joseph, though, is wondering how it's all going to be. Then Joseph, her husband, when he finds out that she's expecting, being a just man, it says, and not willing to make her a public example. Notice how tender he deals with her. This is the tenderness of love. He really loves her. I'm sure he was hurt. I'm sure his mind is in a whirl. I'm sure that his whole world has come crashing down around him as he hears the news that she's expecting a baby. And he knows that he's not the father. And all he can think from a human perspective is that she must have been unfaithful. She must have had some liaison with someone else. And she tells him this story that the Holy Spirit has visited her. The angel Gabriel has announced to her that she would bear the Messiah. And you see, she's been gone for three months. She went immediately after that news to her cousin Elizabeth and told her the news. Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant with John the Baptist at the time, as soon as Mary had approached and Elizabeth heard her salutation, the babe leaped in her womb for joy. John the Baptist, showing that the Holy Spirit had already touched John the Baptist while he was yet in his mother's womb. 
It's an amazing thing, my friends. And Mary stays with her until just before John the Baptist is born, about three months, and then she returns home and breaks the news now three months expecting through her first trimester, she breaks the news now to Joseph and tells him that uh, she's expecting. And Joseph, being a just man, now he could have had her killed. He could have had her stoned to death as an adulteress. But Joseph, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, not only does he not have her killed, but he doesn't want to parade her name and have her humiliated. You know, you seldom build yourself up by putting someone else down. And he might have thought, well, I need to clear my name. And the best way to clear my name is to have her branded with a big scarlet A. But he doesn't do that, does he? He determines that he's going to put her away privately. He's going to deal with it as tenderly as he can so that she can save face. But then while he thought on these things, says verse 20, the angel of the Lord, the same one that had appeared to Mary, no doubt Gabriel. The good news angel appears to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. It's an amazing announcement. And my beloved, may I say, if you have bought into the secular mindset today that the supernatural is impossible, if you've become a naturalist, if you think that the only thing that is real is what can be explained in a laboratory. And my friends, you're in an impoverished state because there's so much about our world that cannot be explained by purely naturalistic phenomena. If you don't understand there is a God beyond the realm of nature, a God who made it all, and a God with whom nothing is impossible. If you say, well, sophisticated, educated people don't believe that anymore. My friends, may I say there is so much about our world that is unexplainable apart from the supernatural dimension. You see, the Christian worldview is one that understands that nature can ultimately be explained by supernature, that the phenomenal can ultimately be explained by the noumenal realm. And yes, indeed, there is a God with whom nothing is impossible. In fact, when Gabriel told Mary that she was expecting a child she said how can this be seeing i know not a man and he said mary with man it's impossible but with god all things are possible and my friends how many things in our lives does that sentence explain with man it's impossible but not with god with god all things are possible Never forget, my beloved, that where human arms are too short, the divine arm is not. The divine arm can resolve your difficulties, your problems. Let's remember the virgin birth because it reminds us that with God, all things are possible. That's the God we trust today. That's the God that we worship today, a God whose hand is not shortened that it cannot save and his ear is not heavy that it cannot hear but he can do the impossible with men. In fact, that's what your salvation in mind was. It was impossible grace that saved and rescued the likes of you and me. Indeed, the virgin birth is an important doctrine. So the angel comes to Joseph and says, fear not. And by the way, how many angels preface their messages in Scripture with these two little words, fear not. Don't be afraid. 
Yes, fear dominates so many people, but the good news says don't be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid because your God is in control. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Don't be afraid that people will talk about you. Don't be afraid what they might say or how your reputation might be harmed. He says, God will take care of you. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son. Notice Gabriel's pronouncement. She shall bring forth a son. The word shall indicates a certainty, doesn't it? And what is the sex of this child? It's a boy child. It's a son. She shall bear a son, a male offspring. And it will happen. And thou shalt call his name Jesus. Notice the angel identifies what Joseph and Mary would name the child, Jesus. He says, this is the name God has picked out for him. That's wonderful when mothers and fathers can agree on a name for a child. I don't know how some people come about that these days because I hear some strange names. You know, Bob and Sue and Billy and those names that were once common are, are very uncommon today. Today they're named after stars and galaxies and, and comets and whatever, who knows what. But anyway, um, here God picks out a name. And the reason God gave the child this name is because this name has a meaning. It means Jehovah saves. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Notice there are three shells in this verse. It says she shall bring forth a son. Did she? Yes, indeed. Did they call his name Jesus? It says thou shalt call his name Jesus. Did they? Yes, indeed. Did he save his people from their sins? Yes, indeed. Jesus Christ did not merely make a stab at salvation, make salvation available, make salvation possible. He secured it. He procured it. Jesus came to save and he saved his people. Not depending on whether they cooperate with it or add something to it later. It is a salvation that is finished. It is a salvation accomplished and applied. He shall save, and notice the definite group that he came to save, his people. Psalm 111 verse 9 says, God sent redemption to his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. Not to Adam's race, but to God's elect, his people. Those that were given to Christ before the world began in covenant. Isaiah 53, 12 says, For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Indeed, we believe in a particular redemption, a definite atonement. Jesus Christ saved his people from their sins. He didn't say he shall save his people from the Romans. He didn't say he shall save his people from poverty. He shall save his people from sickness or disease. He shall save his people from their sins. That's the biggest foe that you and I have, our sins. For our sins merit divine wrath and judgment. But Jesus Christ has delivered us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin. And my beloved, one day he will even deliver us from the presence of sin. And notice to calm Joseph's mind, the angel turns to the scriptures in verses 22 and 23. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Now Joseph was a, an educated Jewish young man, and he knew his Old Testament, and he knew this messianic prophecy, but he'd probably forgotten it in the dust and smoke 
of confusion when Mary says, I'm expecting a child. He'd probably forgotten it, but when the angel says, don't be afraid to take her unto thee, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And by the way, the scriptures predicted this would happen. Can you imagine the peace that the mention of God's word brought to Joseph's mind when he says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. He's quoting from Isaiah 7:14, And shall bear a child, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Oh, indeed, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. His name is not only Jesus, which speaks of his work of saving sinners, but his name is Emmanuel, which speaks of his person. For he's God and man simultaneously. God with us. He's God come down to us. Now God for us is a wonderful thought, isn't it? That God is for you. But God with us as our companion, as one of us, is even more amazing condescension. God with us. That's his name when he came to this earth. And then notice Joseph's peace. We've talked about Joseph's predicament, Gabriel's pronouncement. Now notice Joseph's peace, verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him. He's satisfied. He's reconciled. His mind is at ease now. He was in a whirl. He was confused. He was worried. He was anxious. He didn't know what he was about to do with his betrothed spouse that he thought had been unfaithful to him. But now he's at peace. He's satisfied. And he arises from his sleep, and he did as the angel had bidden him, and he took unto him his wife. He brought her into his home, and he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. So he cares for her as a husband would a wife in every way except in terms of physical intimacy until she has given birth to her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. If you look into the next chapter, chapter 2, Matthew, verse 2, it says that Herod wants to know where is he that is born king of the Jews. Our Lord Jesus, my beloved, wasn't born a baby and then grew to be king. He was born a king. And wise men actually came, as you read in that second chapter, to offer royal gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and to worship him. Can you imagine three dignitaries bowing down at the bassinet of a newborn child? <laughs> You don't bow down and worship babies unless that baby is Emmanuel, the king of the universe, God with us. Matthew's gospel proceeds to address the king's kingdom. Chapter 3, verse 2, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king's testing in chapter 4, verse 8. And even the devil knew he was a king for he said, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in the earthly riches and wealth and power. I'm the king of God's kingdom. And then the king's manifesto is mentioned in chapters 5 through 7, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. That's the king's royal family code, what it means to live in his kingdom. Then the king's credentials are verified by the miracles he performs in Matthew's gospel. You read about the king's royal entrance into Jerusalem as you get close to the end of Matthew's gospel. In fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee lowly, and having salvation riding upon an ass, the colt, the foal of an ass. You read about the king's authority as revealed in his final words, Matthew 28.19, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And finally, the king's ascension to the throne at the Father's right hand. 
where he presently reigns as the universal sovereign. My friends, he's the king of nations. He's the king of grace. He's the king of wisdom. He's the king of the poor and the lowly. He's the king of his kingdom. He's the king of kings. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion shall know no end. May you and I today, my beloved, like the wise men, come to worship this king. Bring him a gift. You say, well, what shall I bring him? How about your life? Lay your life on the altar of Christian service as a living sacrifice. He is worthy of that. And then bow in humble submission and adoration before him. For Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Rejoice.